This morning's text is Judges 10, 6 through 18. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, And the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Let's ask for the Lord's help together. Father, the text before us today is difficult in a number of ways, and so I pray for your help. I pray for help for myself as I preach it, and I pray for help for all of us as we hear it and receive it, and don't just take it as a story about other people, but take it as a mirror that's helping us to see our own hearts and our own desperate need of a Savior. Father, I am a compromised man, and I am assuming that everybody in this room is a compromised person, and we need a Savior. Compromise is serious, Lord, and and your word plainly shows us this, but it seems like we're like the pig that just loves to keep going back to the slop. And so I pray for your help, Lord. I pray for your patience with us. I pray for your kindness. I pray for your grace. I pray for your mercy. I pray for you to come in and make a difference in our lives. I ask you to come this morning and break chains off of our lives. Lord, you're the chain breaker. You're the one that delivers us from patterns of sin from which we could not be free unless you would intervene. You're the one who took up the cross and died that we could be free to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And so I ask you, Jesus, to come this very morning. Come and show us that you're actually present with us. Show us, Jesus, that you are the Lord of this church and not just the Lord of the church in a broad way. I love you for this, Lord, because I know that you'll minister to us by your word now. 
And so I thank you, Lord. With all my heart, I thank you, and I praise you for what you'll do. In your mighty name, I pray. Amen. After the days of Gideon and his tragically wayward son Abimelech, Israel again fell into sin. No big surprise by this time. They again committed adultery against the God who had been so faithful to them and who had been so powerful for them. And though we don't know the particulars of what happened in this instance, we can assume by this point of the book of Judges that God handed them over to some oppressor and that finally they they became distressed in their situation and they cried out to God for help and God in compassion and mercy and kindness and faithfulness reached out to free them from their oppression. God was under no obligation to save his people. In fact, he had every right to divorce them or to destroy them. But he has revealed himself in Exodus chapter 34 as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious who's slow to anger, exceedingly slow to anger and filled, absolutely overflowing with steadfast love and faithfulness. And so in response to Israel's cries, the Lord's heart was moved and he reached out to act on their behalf. Indeed, beloved, because God is faithful, his covenant with Israel was unbreakable. The faithfulness of God was the hope and the salvation of Israel. And the faithfulness of God is our hope and our salvation as well. This time, God sent a judge named Tola. You can see him at the beginning of chapter 10. All we know about him is that he was from the tribe of Ishakar. He lived in the hills of Ephraim, which is a territory near to Jerusalem, and he judged Israel for 23 years or about a half a generation, and then he died and he was buried, and that's all that we know. Tola was Israel's sixth judge, and so we would hope by this time that they had learned their lesson, that they would turn back to God and be thankful for their deliverance, and that they would finally be faithful to the one who had been so faithful to them, but they did not stay faithful Rather, they fell back into their old patterns of sin and eventually they were given over to an oppressor and eventually they cried out to God and eventually God was moved and sent them another deliverer. This time his name was Jair. And he lived on the east side of the Jordan in an area called Gilead, which is where Jephthah is from as well. All we know about him is that he judged Israel for 22 years and then he died. And then the Bible tells us this seemingly odd little fact that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 cities. It seems a little strange, doesn't it? I was puzzling most of the week saying, Lord, of all the things that you could have said about this guy, why 30 kids with 30 donkeys and 30 cities? And then as I studied more, I realized that this is much like saying he had 30 sons who rode in 30 Mercedes-Benz and who were the mayors of 30 cities. And so the picture that's trying to be painted here is that Jair and his entire family had a, a, a quite an amount of power, position, prominence, and prestige in Israel. In fact, they had so much influence that it seemed that there was a measure of rule and perhaps some stability had even come to the country. That's the point that's trying to be made here. But the next section of this chapter, the one that Asa just read for us, paints a very different picture of Israel's situation and it shatters this illusion of stability and faithfulness. Whatever the people of Israel thought about their situation before the Lord at this time, the Lord had something to say about what he saw in them. If you look there at verse 6 again, it says the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they worshiped the, they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods, plural, of Syria, 
the gods, plural, of Sidon, the gods, plural, of Moab, the gods, plural, of the Ammonites, the gods, plural, of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So no matter what their illusions, God looked at Israel and saw absolute disaster. That's what he saw. They may have been prosperous, but they were also adulterous. They were people who were worshiping anything and everything in sight except for the Lord. I'm sure that if you were to visit Israel in this time, you would have found little shrines to Yahweh, to the one true God. You would have probably found them practicing certain rites and rituals that made them feel like they were pleasing to God. But when God looked at their worship, he saw compromise, idolatry, and disaster. That's what he saw. Their hearts were far from God. They may have added him to their pantheon of gods to cover all of their bases, but their hearts did not love the Lord their God. And what he wants is people's hearts, not their rites and rituals. Some years ago I was in India and I visited a city called Alabad, and there's a university there that we had gone to visit and we spent a few days with one of the leaders of that university. He showed us around and we were thinking and praying about various things that were going on there together. He told us at one point, that, and he was dead serious about this. He said, if I was to take off my right shoe right now and paint it gold and make it look really pretty, and if I was to set up an altar around this thing and call people to worship, he said, in very little time, I could have 50,000 or maybe even 500,000 Indians gathered in this place worshiping my shoe. The people of India are zealous to worship anything that's attached to a god. And the truth of the matter is, we're all like this. We're just a little bit more sophisticated about it in America. But if you look at all the popular magazines and television shows, all the malls and all the things that we do with our lives, if you have eyes to see, you'll see idolatry there as well. In the days of the judges, the people of Israel were very much like the people of India. They will worship anything and everything. Tell me that it's a God and I'll worship it. In truth, it's just a shoe, but if you tell me it's a God, I'll worship it. We have found, through archaeological finds, many of the idols that they worship, and they look more ridiculous than a shoe. But people would worship it, and this was God's people at this time. Beloved, these were the people God had given his everything to deliver These were the people that God had promised, if you'll just be faithful to me, I will bless your socks off and make you a blessing to all the nations of the world. And yet, they're worshiping things that are more silly than a shoe. Their hearts were corrupt, and therefore their worship was corrupt. Their hearts had gone astray, and therefore their worship was astray. It was just all over the map. After all that the Lord had done for these slave people over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years, it's no wonder that he was again provoked to anger because of their behavior. And so he handed them this time over to the Philistines in the west of Israel and to the Ammonites in the east of Israel. So the picture that's being painted here is that they're basically being dominated from all sides. And the Ammonites, even though they live to the east of the Jordan, they would even invade into the mainland of Israel and oppress the tribes that were there. They were in a mess. These two powers who Israel was commanded by God to displace and destroy because of the judgment of God upon them after a thousand years of, of, of sin, instead of subjecting these people, they became subject to them. And the Bible says they were oppressed and even crushed for 18 years on both sides of the Jordan. Bad situation again. And they put themselves there. 
when they couldn't take their oppression anymore, Israel finally cried out to the Lord and they asked him for deliverance. But by this time, God had had enough and he didn't want to hear it anymore. And so he said this in verses 11 through 14, the kinds of things you never want to hear God saying to you in response to your prayers. He said, did I not save you from the Egyptians? So now we're talking about hundreds of years ago. And from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines. By the way, the very people that you're subject to right now. Didn't I already deliver you from these very people? And by the way, there's more. The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. And God could have added to this list. Last week we saw him deliver them from the Midianites, and before that it was somebody else, and before that it was somebody else. God's not giving an exhaustive list here. He's just trying to say, people, don't you get it? Can't you see the pattern? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, and therefore, here's what you'd never want to hear God say. I will save you no more. Go, cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. Oh, Lord, keep my heart from that kind of behavior that you would never have to speak to me like that. God is merciful and patient beyond anything we can imagine, beloved. The older I get, I just turned 47. The older I get, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I am just blown away by his patience, and I'm absolutely grateful for it. His patience is life for us. If God was not patient, we would be destroyed. But there does come a time when the Lord hands us over to the things that we love more than him. There does come a time when he will actually refuse to hear our cries because he knows that all we really want is to get out of a bad situation rather than embrace him so that he can change our hearts and in that way change the situation. The Lord saw in Israel that this is what they really wanted and so he said, listen, cry out to me but I'm not going to listen to you. Now, in faith, they continued crying out. In faith, they continued pleading with him. In faith, they, con- they continued to confess their sins. But this time, they added one thing, and this one thing made all the difference. They actually repented, and they got rid of their foreign gods. They put them away. They destroyed them, and they began to worship the one true and living God and to worship him only. The Lord saw their actual repentance, and he took note of it, And near the end of this section that Asa read for us, did you notice that line where it said that God became impatient, not over their sin, but now over their misery? God changed sides, beloved, because he saw a change of heart. God changed sides because he saw actions rather than just words. He changed sides because he saw true penitence rather than just cries for help. He saw brokenness rather than ritualistic going through the motions, kind of get me out of this prayers. Israel had had a change of heart, and so God changed his heart. And oh boy, there's a lesson that we would do very, very well to learn. God is not impressed with mere words and things that impress other people. God is impressed with actions that honor his words. Please note that, especially if you're a note taker, write that down. God is impressed with actions that honor his words. That's what moves his heart. That's what moves him deeply. Jesus said that in the final day of judgment, he will separate all people into two groups. One will be like sheep and others will be like goats, just the way that a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he said of the goats, that he would, of the sheep, that he would welcome them into his eternal pleasure simply because they had turned to him, believed in him, embraced him, and borne all the fruit 
of loving him from their heart. The goats he will send into eternal torment because they refuse to turn to him, believe in him, love him, and cling to him, and then also bear the fruits of those things. And if you read Matthew 25 carefully where Jesus is talking about these things, you'll see that the only major difference between the sheep and the goats comes down to what they did or did not do. It was not merely a matter of what they did or did not say. It was a matter of what they did or did not do. The sheep did not earn their way into heaven, but what the sheep did was they turned to Jesus and surrendered to him, and then they bore the fruit of heaven. The goats, they might have been about good works to some measure. In fact, they looked at Christ and said, when weren't we feeding people, helping people, clothing people, building hospitals, building prisons, visiting people in prison? When weren't we doing all this stuff? And the Lord just said, listen, you were doing that for yourself. You were doing that to bring glory to yourself. You were doing that to justify yourself. You weren't surrendered to me. You were doing whatever you wanted to do, and you were using your good works to justify your bad works, and I will have none of it. God is impressed with actions that honor his words, beloved. He's impressed with actions that honor his words. God means what he commands, and he empowers us to do what he commands. So it's vital for us to search the scriptures daily and see what God requires and then to do what God requires by his grace and for his glory. God requires us to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word only. Isn't that right? Isn't that what James said? God is not pleased with people who hear the word of God preached or who, who let the word of God be preached out of their mouth and then they walk away and do nothing about it. It is not moving to his heart. What's moving to him is people who actually submit to him by his grace and by his glory. Actually walking with the Lord is what brings pleasure to the Lord because he wants us He wants us. He wants our heart, our minds, our soul, our time, our talent, our treasure. He wants us. He's impressed with things that honor his words because his words are designed to draw us near to his heart, beloved. This is a relational deal that's happening here. Israel finally turned. They finally let their actions match their words, and God was impressed. As for Israel... God was moved by the repentance, and so he began to work for their deliverance because he is faithful. It's not that their actions were compelling God to do anything in particular. It's that their actions moved his merciful heart, and he's faithful to his promises. And so he began to act. Indeed, because he is faithful, his covenant with his people is unbreakable. Enter now a man named Jephthah. The author tells us at the beginning of chapter 11, that Jephthah was the son of a prostitute and that he was a mighty warrior. So maybe some of you have backgrounds that aren't as um, impressive to other people and I just want you to hear that God uses unimpressive people just like me. My background is all messed up, just like Jephthah's and God uses people like us. uh, Jephthah's father had had other children with his actual wife and when they all grew up, those children despised Jephthah. They demeaned him. They cut him off from the family inheritance and they actually drove him away and said, get out of here. You you have nothing to do with our family. You have nothing to do with our father. You have nothing to do with our land. Beat it. And so he left and he took a bunch of troublemakers with him. He went off a little further to the east into an area called Tob. After some time had passed by, the people of Ammon who lived in that general area, area of Gilead, Jephthah's homeland, 
They made war against Israel in that place, and therefore the leaders of Gilead sought out Jephthah because they knew that he was a mighty warrior and they were now in desperate need of help. You can understand Jephthah's response, I'm sure, when he looked at these people and said, now wait a second, time out, let me get this straight. You were the people that hated me. You were the people that despised me. You were the very people that drove me away and ruined my life. You took from me everything that I knew as normal, everything that I knew as life. You drove me away because of your greed, and now you're in trouble, and you want me to save you. Guess what? I don't think so. The people of Israel, though, were very skilled at reaching out for help when they were in a pinch. And so they answered and said, listen, Jephthah, this is the very reason why we've come. We've come to make things right with you. We've come to bless you where we have cursed in the past. And so what we want to do is this. If you'll come out and be our leader and fight this fight for us, then we will make you the head of all of our people. Jephthah was a smart man, so he wanted this in writing, so to speak. He wanted to get the deal done so that it was really done. And he said, all right, that's what you want. Here's what you get. We go before the Lord and we make this deal. I will go to war, and by his grace and for his glory, you will be delivered, and then I will be your king. Or you can call him a prince or mayor, whatever you want to call him. But the bottom line is, instead of just being a part of another family, now he's going to be the head of that whole region, and all of the wealth and all of the resources of that place is going to be in his control and in his power. And the people say, amen, let's do it. They go to a place called Mizpah, which we're not sure where that was. There were actually lots of places called Mizpah. It just means overlook. So they went to some high place, some overlook, where they were before the Lord, and they sealed the deal before the Lord. If you will use Jephthah to deliver us, he will become our leader. He will become our head. And with that, Jephthah put his mind to fashioning a plan. And at this point, I imagine he inquired of the Lord about this. His plan began with diplomacy rather than war, which is rare in the book of Judges. He first sent word to the king of Ammon and asked why he was arrayed against Israel and what they were up to. The king of Ammon responded and said, listen, you people stole our land and we're here to take it back. But Jephthah had done his homework and he knew the history between Israel and Ammon very well. He knew the history of this particular land very well. And so he sent some messengers back to the king with three arguments and a conclusion. You can see his arguments in chapter 11, starting at verse 14, but I'm just going to summarize these things for you. Three arguments. First of all, Jephthah said, listen, Israel never wanted your land, and we never wanted to do violence to you as a people. That was not in our heart. What happened was, we tried to pass through your land on our way to the promised land that God had given us. You refused us. You worked with other people to try to curse us. And finally, you came out against us. We went to war. We won. God gave us the land. So we didn't steal anything. We took it in war. And we took it in war because you attacked us and we were defending ourselves. Point number one. Point number two. Listen, King of Ammon. The reason we won that war was not because we were stronger than you, but because our God is stronger than your gods. God gave us this land, and if you're going to take it back, you're not actually opposing me or my people. You're opposing God. Wouldn't it be better if you just settled with what God gave you, and we will settle with what God gave us? Argument number three. Also, Ammon and your king, if you were so passionate about reclaiming this land, why did you wait 300 years to take it back? 300 years had passed, beloved, and now they say we want our land back. The truth of the matter is, 
They were just using historical revisionism to justify current aggression. That was the truth. Jephthah wanted the truth to be put on the table, so he put the truth on the table and said, listen, this is not about land. This is about power. That's what this is about. So finally, he concluded in words that I think are the, are the key to this story. They're the title of my message. If you look at verse 27, chapter 11, verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by waking, making war on me. And here's the key. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. So the people of Ammon had their version of the story, and the people of Israel had their version of the story. Both could not be true. A very similar thing is happening in Ukraine right now. The division in that country has to do between two completely different narratives of what's supposed to define that country. Both cannot be true. So this is like front page news here. This is what's happening between Ammon and Israel. One's telling one story, another's telling another story. Both cannot be true. Rather than Jephthah just arguing back and forth and going through endless kinds of debates and whatever else there might be, he just said, listen, God is God. He knows the truth, so let him decide the case. This is the only place in the book of Judges, by the way, where God is called a judge. He is the perfect arbiter of any conflict, and Jephthah, in faith, is saying, I will leave this in the hands of God. The Lord, the judge, he will decide. Beloved, that is faith talking. I want you to understand that this is a man who is trusting in the word and the will and the ways of the Lord so much that he is actually willing to risk his life and risk the lives of his people because he believes the word of God to be true. If they were to go to war and God's words were not true, Jephthah was going to die and his people were going to die. So this was not simply a matter of having faith in the sense of having an emotion of believing in God. This was real stuff. This was like, I am willing to put my life on the line to say this. The Lord is actually the judge. Let him decide the matter. And so as a man of faith, God clothed him with the spirit of God and sent him out to the battlefield. He took quite a long journey up a hill and down a hill and up another ridge and down another ridge and through a pass and through another pass. Finally got to the battlefield, but just before he was to engage in the battle. He did something very tragic and very unfortunate for which other people would pay a high price and which we are still talking about to this day. This is one of the most controversial, difficult, talked about stories in the entire Bible. And it all comes down to a moment where a man slipped into his flesh. Specifically, what Jephthah did was he made a vow to the Lord. Now you might ask, like of all the things that could be said of a man's tragic mistake, why would it be so tragic to make a vow to the Lord? And I have two responses to that. First of all, the Lord had just put his spirit upon Jephthah, so what more did Jephthah need? Why did Jephthah need a vow to add to the spirit of God that was upon him? God called him. God sent him. God empowered him. And that should have been more than enough for Jephthah. But instead of being content in the Lord, he felt like he had to take a vow. He needed to do something that he was familiar with. And I think that it's probably because his heart was still mixed between the true worship of God and the false worship of false gods. The second reason this vow is so tragic is because of what he vowed. It's horrible what he vowed. He said to the Lord, that if the Lord would give him victory, he would offer as a burnt offering to the Lord the first person that walked out of his door. Now, in your Bibles, some of them will say whoever is the first to walk out. Others will say whatever is the first to walk out. There's some debate 
in the Hebrew language as to whether Jephthah is saying whoever or whatever, but this has to be a whoever because whatevers don't walk out of a door, right? A table doesn't walk out of a door. So then some people say, well, but what he's got in mind here is animal sacrifice, not human sacrifice, because it is true that in those days, Israelites built their houses in such a way that at least some of their livestock lived inside the house with them. Probably the ones that they got milk from or the ones that they thought most precious lived inside the house. So it could be that Jephthah is saying the first animal that walks out of the house, but that doesn't make a lot of sense because an animal sacrifice would have been normal, not unusual. You wouldn't have to take a vow to do that. It seems to all of the scholars that I read this week and to my own reading of the text, pretty obvious that Jephthah actually had human sacrifice in mind. Not the least of which is the way that the story actually ends. Do not think that just because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him at this time that his vow was inspired by God because it was not. And I can say that with confidence because I know that God would not inspire a man to vow what God has forbid. God expressly forbid human sacrifice. He would never, ever, ever cause a man or a woman to make a vow like that. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah for the purpose of delivering Israel from Ammon. That was it. Jephthah did not need to make a vow. He did that in his flesh. He did not need to guarantee the death of a human being in order to secure victory in war. He did that in his flesh. He was a man. He was a broken man. And that's all that he was. The God of Israel had forbid any form of human sacrifice in no uncertain terms. But the peoples around them practiced this. And you have to understand that Jephthah grew up as the son of a prostitute in an extremely idolatrous culture. Remember, even Israel themselves, they're worshiping anything that they can put their eyes upon. They may have even begun engaging in human sacrifice, not because God commanded or blessed it, but because they were giving in to the ways of the people around them who did this for centuries. In fact, it turns out when you do the historical research that the people of Ammon were the kings of human sacrifice. They did it more than anybody. And, and, and Jephthah grew up in their backyard. So when I look at this man, I see a man whose heart is a mixture of a true desire to serve God, and yet he's got all this idolatrous baggage, and he doesn't know how to love the Lord except in this way over here. God, will it please you if I do this stuff that I learned outside of you? Will it please you if I do that for you? That's what I see happening in his heart. He was not a perfect hero. He was an incredibly flawed, in some ways tragic hero, but God chose to use him anyway. The story does not turn out well, but I pray that we could at least take comfort from that, that God uses very broken people. Guess who ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? (laughs) Jephthah. He's there. It's amazing to me. Jephthah went out to battle. You'd think that there'd be this long description of the battle. It's, it's described in one or two verses. It's just over, just like that. He roundly defeats the Ammonites. He quickly defeats the Ammonites by the power of God. He returns home. Upon returning home, he looks up to his front door, and in, in a blink of an eye, in a moment of time, all of his joy turns into searing pain because as he looked and listened at his front door, what did he see but his only daughter, in fact, his only child, leaping and dancing out of the door, playing her tambourine and celebrating the victory that God had just granted to her father and to his people. And when he saw her, he was just absolutely crushed by the vow that he made. And the Bible says he ripped his clothes in two and he shouted out to the Lord and said, Oh, my daughter, oh, my daughter, 
You have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Thought a lot about what was in Jephthah's mind at this point. He may have thought that his rousing victory confirmed the righteousness and acceptability of his vow before the Lord, or he may have realized in this moment what an utter foolish thing it was to do to utter this vow. But whatever was in his heart, he believed that his words were irreversible and that he had to carry out the thing that he had uttered. God would never require a man to sin so greatly in order to keep a vow he should not have made. But in some, for some reason, Jephthah felt that he had to do what he promised he would do. And I'll tell you what amazes me about this story is how quickly his daughter submitted to this. It just blows my mind. If there's any hero in this story, it's her. I just can't believe how she just says, Father, do what you've given to the Lord to do. I submit myself. I only ask for this. Give me about two months. Let me go away with my friends. Let me grieve the fact that I will never marry and bear children. And her father granted that. The Bible does not spell out for us what happened after that time. And because of that, there are people that will teach that she was ever ne- never actually put to death, but that she was dedicated to the Lord, perhaps lived in the temple or something like that. But I don't see evidence for that in the text. The text tells us that for generations, Israel honored her by going away every spring to remember her, which to me assumes that she was put to death. I assume that Jephthah followed through on this horribly tragic vow. And I want to be as clear as I possibly can be. I think I've already said it, but I want to say it again. Jephthah did what God forbid. He was not pleased with this. Jephthah did what God forbid when he did what he did to his daughter. The Lord was not pleased. And again, I say this confidently because I've read the word of God and I know that he is absolutely disgusted by human sacrifice and forbids it with no uncertain terms. I mean, you should read the text where God's talking about not sacrificing human beings. They're serious texts. God would never require as an act of worship what he has already rejected as an act of idolatry. He would never do that. So Jephthah was a man who God used, but the truth of the matter is that Jephthah was a man who needed a deliverer. He delivered the people, but he needed a deliverer. As I said, he grew up as the son of a prostitute in the midst of a terribly idolatrous culture, and the idolatry was deeply within him. And he was motivated, and he was acting because of that. He was what we call a syncretist. He was a person who takes a little bit of the truth and a little bit of error and mixes them or synchronizes them together. He's a person who flew the banner of Yahweh and, and, and everything that the one true God represents over all kinds of things that the one true God deplores. He was a broken man. He was a flawed man. Just as it was with Gideon, so it was with Jephthah. He did a great job at facing the enemies that were outside of him, but he completely underestimated the power of his main enemy that was right here. His own idolatrous heart is what actually led him astray. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, but what he needed was the Spirit of the Lord to come within him and transform his heart from the inside out. So now we're in a situation where Israel and their leader were free from their external enemies, but they were still trapped absolutely trapped by their own wayward hearts. And as if this 
Private family tragedy wasn't enough. Soon some of Jephthah's own people rose up against him. And when I say own people, I don't just mean Israel in general, but I mean another tribe rose up against him that was directly related to him. Both Ephraim and Jephthah's tribe came from Joseph. So these are direct descendants of one man. And Ephraim, that strong and arrogant tribe that came out against Gideon, as we saw last week, they now came out against Jephthah. They actually gathered military forces and they said, listen, pal, what's wrong with you? You didn't invite us out to the war. And what they were really after was glory and spoils. That's what they wanted. Jephthah said, what are you talking about? I called on you and called on you and called on you. My people were oppressed. You would not come help us. But now I delivered them and you want glory? You want spoils? You want all that? Forget about it. They start going back and forth. More insults are exchanged. Bottom line, Jephthah gathers his troops. Ephraim gathers their troops. They go to war, and God decided. 42,000 Ephraimites died that day, and it's simply because of arrogance. You think about that. Elk River is roughly about 20,000 people strong. Twice the population of Elk River died because of the arrogance of idolatry. It's just unbelievable to me the price that people pay for clinging to their idolatry and the price that I pay for doing the exact same thing. If the people of Ephraim would have been walking with the Lord and seeking the Lord, they would have seen the glory of what God had done and they would have rejoiced with their brother. They would not have cared about the things of the earth and probably Jephthah would have gladly shared those things with them. But instead, they were blind to the glory of God because they were lost in their idolatry. And I pray that we will be warned by this because the same danger is right there for us. So often people see the glory of God right in front of their face and they're blind to it because of their idolatry. They're grumbling against one another, fighting with one another, warring with one another. And James says, why is it? James says in chapter 4, it's because of all the wickedness that's inside of our hearts. We're blinded by idolatry to the glory of God. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall have eyes to see God. Cursed are the compromisers, because they will be blind to the glory of God. That's exactly what happened to Ephraim, beloved. This war, 42,000 deaths, the result of compromise. I'm telling you, compromise is more dangerous than cancer. And I really mean that. I wish my heart would actually believe that. I wish my heart, in the secret places of my heart, would say, Oh, soul, know that compromise is worse than cancer. Flee from it. Turn to Jesus. Love him and love him only. That's the only place where there's true, true, true life. After these things, Jephthah died, and Israel fell into sin again. God raised up for them three more judges who delivered them three more times. You can see this at the end of chapter 12. Ibzan Judged Israel seven years. Elon judged them for ten years. Abdon judged them for eight years. Hardly anything is said about these judges because hardly anything needs to be said. All we need to know is that Israel is just like us. Their hearts were prone to wonder and their actions deeply affected and pained the heart of God. In fact, the only reason that the people of Israel were not destroyed as a people was because God is merciful and God is faithful to his promises. No matter what people do to him, he will never, ever break his covenant. 
He's like a husband of a wife who's constantly prostituting herself and the, and the husband says, no matter what you do, I will never divorce you. I will be faithful even if you were unfaithful because this is a matter of character for me. This is what's happening with God. His people are adulterating themselves over and over again. But because God is faithful, his covenant with his bride, the people of Israel, was absolutely unbreakable. The faithfulness of God was the hope of Israel. And beloved, it is our hope as well. And it's our only hope. Today, I don't know if you've been counting or not, but today we have looked at six of Israel's 12 judges. We've seen them come and go. Two before Jephthah, then there was Jephthah, and now three, quickly, boom, boom, boom. And it's evident that after all of this deliverance that God provided for his people, the hearts of Israel remained the same. God graciously and repeatedly granted them deliverance because they asked for it, but what they really needed was transformation. What they really should have been asking for is, Lord, forget our circumstances. Come and change our hearts and then do whatever you want to do with our circumstances. But we're so sick of these broken hearts that keep climbing back into the holes that you deliver us from. But the truth of the matter is, all they really wanted was out, right? You ever find yourself acting like that? where the truth of it is you just want out of the mess that you made and you don't really want the Lord himself. Well, that's what was going on with Israel and what has happened to me many, many, many times. Israel needed a greater deliverer. They needed a better savior. They needed one who had the spirit without measure and one on whom the spirit would never depart. They needed one whose heart was completely free from idolatry. They needed a deliverer whose mind was completely and firmly and joyfully and eternally fixed upon the Lord his God. They needed a Savior who would do God's will and only God's will, who would not make tragic vows and follow through on those vows. They needed one who would courageously stand up against their enemies, foreign and domestic, external and internal, but who would also love his enemies and lay his life down for their salvation. They needed a Savior who would primarily save them from themselves and then address their circumstances in that order. They needed a Savior who would heal the root of the problem and not just keep dealing with the fruit of their sinful ways. They needed Jesus Christ, beloved, and we do too because he is the only Savior that will do. If you were here while we were going through the book of Hebrews some months ago now, You may remember that we talked about the fact that God the Father has made Jesus Christ to be both the King and the High Priest of heaven and earth forever and ever and ever, and that he's reigning as those very things this day, and he will do so forever. Before the time of Jesus, God required a separation of powers so that no one person could serve as the King and as the priest, and the reason is because nobody's character could handle that much power. Nobody's character could handle that much authority. But in Jesus Christ, you get one who is infinite in wisdom and infinite in his perfections, and he can handle the office. The character of Christ matches the calling that is upon Christ. And so God has made him to be the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior, the ultimate judge. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and the high priest of high priests forever and ever. He alone is the uncompromising and incorruptible Savior. Everybody else, very, very broken. Jephthah was a very broken man, and so his reign in many ways was tragic. Jephthah's compromise had grave consequences, especially for his daughter. Ephraim's compromise had grave consequences for 42,000 of their people. 
Israel's repeated compromise had so many consequences, it's hard to even get your mind around them, much less list them out. But praise be to God. Jesus Christ is not like any of these people, and he's not like us. Oh, again, as I get older, I'm just so grateful that Christ is not like me. I'm so grateful that he's faithful deeply and eternally and infinitely and all the way to the end. He never for a second blinks and looks away from his father. He loves his father with infinite perfection. And that's the greatest news for all of us because it makes him the best savior. He is completely whole. And so he gave all of himself for all of us. He is the only one who can primarily save us from our hearts and then deliver us from our circumstances, and that's what we need. And I pray with all my heart that that's how we would pray. Lord, first deliver me from myself. Change this heart that keeps getting into all these problems. And then yes, then yes, amen, let's deal with the problems. The book of Judges is specifically designed to paint a very black backdrop against which Jesus Christ becomes what he is. Very, very glorious in our eyes. He's the only Savior, the only deliverer of the world. And how I pray that we would look to the book of Judges and see not just stories of other people, but we would see a mirror image of our own hearts. I'm going to talk in a couple of weeks about how I see these very kinds of things happening in our very culture. This stuff is not just about people over there at some other time. This is about human beings at all times. I pray that we would not be afraid to let the book of Judges diagnose us. And I pray that we would help Let the book of Judges help us long for a Savior, really long for a Savior. And I pray that we would let the book of Judges drive us to Jesus Christ and repent from our sins, to be like Israel and put away our idols. Just put them away. If you'll ask Jesus, he will point them out and tell you to put them away, and he'll help you to do it. But beloved, all that work is not something we do for him. As I said a couple weeks ago, repentance is a simple, simple thing. All we're doing is turning to Christ and that he does his work inside of us. We don't have to clean ourselves up over here. We're unable to do that anyway. We don't have to clean ourselves up and then bring ourselves to God. We bring the mess to Jesus. We just turn to him. We surrender to him. We look to him. We spend time with him. We read his word. We listen to his wisdom. We talk to him. We express our hearts. And in his presence, he gives us all the freedom, all the power that we need to break the chains that have been holding us back. And I pray that we would repent even today. I pray that we would not waste the word of God that was just been invested into our lives. And I pray for my own heart that I would gladly, this very day, turn from my idols to the one true and living God. Let's ask him for help. Lord, I am deeply grateful for your word. I'm deeply grateful for the honesty of the Bible. I'm deeply grateful that you don't just cover over people's brokenness and tragic decisions because it makes me see that I, am, I fit in the Bible and the Bible is about me. Our culture fits in the Bible. The Bible's about our culture. This is real life we're talking about. These are not myths and fables and tales. So I thank you for your honesty, Lord. I thank you for your willingness to use your word to pierce our hearts and expose what's really there. I thank you for your eyes that see everything and from which we cannot hide. Lord, it's so uncomfortable and even painful at times, but it's so good for us because you tell us the truth in order to heal us and change us and transform us. 
So I pray, Lord, that you would give us the power today simply to turn to you and surrender to you and let you work your will inside of us. Lord, it's such a simple thing, but as sinners, we make simple things very complicated. And so I'm asking for help. I'm asking for power. I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to work inside of us and transform us. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that's never given their lives to you even once, I pray that today would be the day that they would see the beauty of you as a Savior, and I pray that they would embrace you both now and forevermore. And I thank you, Lord, whether believers or unbelievers in this room, I thank you for what you will do because you are the living God. You are not just a God about whom we hear stories that happened so long ago, but you're living in our midst right now. So I thank you for what you're doing right now. And for it, I praise you in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen.